Well, good morning, everybody. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians this morning as we continue in our series. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 983, page 983. And before uh, Christmas, we began to dig into this book of, of Colossians and uh, trying to understand the times and, and uh, people of, of the days of Colossians uh, and the people that were involved. And we learned learned in the introduction that uh, uh, it was a small yet growing church. It was a church that uh, had come to a place of crossroads, as many churches do, and uh, it found itself being inundated with teachers who brought troublesome doctrines and beliefs within the church. And it got so bad that the pastor of the Colossian church uh, had to seek advice and wisdom. The pastor's name was Epaphras, and he sought wisdom from uh, the man who had led him to the Lord, the man who had discipled him, the Apostle Paul. Now, he didn't bring the Apostle Paul into Colossae. In fact, the Apostle Paul would never meet these people. He would write a letter from uh, Rome where he was imprisoned. And uh, what we have is an outcome of the meetings between Epaphras, the pastor of Colossians uh, Church, and the Apostle Paul, and Paul writes, even before Epaphras gets back to his church, writes about what needs to be done in the church uh, of Colossae. Now the question is, is how is Paul going to address these issues? And we're going to see right away in verse 15 that he's going to call out uh, the problem at hand. Uh, Colossians had been duped into believing that Jesus wasn't the incarnate God who put on flesh and made his dwelling among us, uh, that which we have celebrated in this Christmas. Christmas uh, celebration. No, the Colossian people had started to take a devalued look and perspective uh, about who Jesus was and what he was all about. And as a result of that, anytime you devalue Jesus, other things are going to take precedence, preeminence, pre- predominance in your thinking. And in Colossians, we see they elevated other things. They elevated the worship uh, of angels, which we'll talk about in, in Colossians chapter 2. They elevated uh, wisdom and knowledge uh, under the heading of Gnosticism, the secret wisdom and knowledge that showed you you were in uh, the elite with regards to your spirituality, and they had fallen prey to that. They had also fallen prey to this idea that if if you were uh, abstaining from certain things, then you could be viewed as, as holy. Now the problem was they weren't abstaining from sin, but abstaining from things that were altogether good and right for Christians to be a part of, and they did so so that they could promote a super, if you will, spiritual elitism uh, in the church at Colossae. So in light of all this, Paul starts at, right after his prayer for the Colossian people He says, you've believed and you're behaving in an unbiblical way, and we need to get you a true understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he's all about. Now, I want you to know that that even though we are separated by 2,000 years, that same issue comes to our world today. False teachers in our time and in our day attack the person of Jesus, and they do so under three headings. Christ holds three offices. He holds the office of prophet, priest, and king. And false teachers attack his role as prophet by taking the words of Christ and twisting them to accomplish their evil ways. They'll next attack the office of priest, and they'll do so by attacking uh, the validity of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They'll deny its sufficiency. They'll deny its validity with regards to the resurrection, that it actually took place. And they will say that something else than what the Scripture says uh, about the death, burial, and resurrection is true. Finally, they'll set their sights on him as king. And this was the sin that was most pronounced in the time of the Colossian believers. And what they believed was they believed that Jesus Christ was not, in fact, fully God and fully man, as the Scriptures declare. And they saw Jesus as insufficient with regards to our life with God. He was important, but he was not all important. He was not the preeminent one that he was called to be. And Paul is going to address this in our text this morning. So I'm going to ask that you would stand as we look to the words of the Apostle Paul, being reminded these are the words of God and how they ought to impact our lives. So let's look at Colossians 1, 
verses 15 through 20. And I'm going to take the personal pronouns that uh, uh, are there about Jesus. And I'm going to input Jesus's name in there because I think it is important that we remember who this passage is talking about and, and doing so without ruining the text in any way. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, that is, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to Jesus all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, as I prayed in the first service, I pray again, I have an impossible task before me to declare the preeminence of your Son, Jesus Christ. No words that are uttered, no songs that can be sung, no acts of kindness can ever demonstrate the fullness of the deity and power and dominion of Jesus Christ. We worship him as God, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, not an intermingling of two, but two distinct natures. And we do so because your word tells us to. And so, Lord, we lift high your son this morning. We lift him high because he deserves our praise, because of what he has done, because of who he is, and because of what he will do in the future. So, Lord, I pray that that would be our aim. I pray that we would be impacted by that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Over the years, as both an employer and as a pastor, I've been asked numerous times to write letters of recommendations for people. I just wrote uh, one most recently for a, a young woman who was heading off uh, to college. And these letters have been used for all types of things. As I've said, for those students that are applying to college, for those individuals who maybe are looking for a new job and looking for a recommendation, <clears throat> I've written for some of you uh, letters of recommendation because you're in the process of adopting a child. I've written recommendations for uh, people that have left this church and are uh, now in a new community and looking for a new church and needing a recommendation from the former church where they worshiped. I've even had the opportunity to write words of, of uh, um, a recommendation for those of you who have received different awards, whether at work or, or in your schools or in your neighborhoods. And yet, while I've written so many of these, I can't remember how many the count is, I was uh, impacted by the last uh, couple weeks where I received in, in the mail a letter that seemed different than all the other mail I had gotten. It was a packet of information and very well packaged. And in it, it was asking for a letter of recommendation of an individual I spent very, very little time with. And yet, it's an individual that will have profoundly impacted my life here on earth. Oh, I'd never really met him or engaged with him. Uh, the situation that brought us together now was asking for me to give a recommendation to what would be an, a significant reward and uh, a significant, if you will, uh, prize of over a million dollars. Some of you are aware that some month, a couple months ago, I was a part, an eyewitness, a hands-on experience with a freak automobile accident that would take the life of a 52-year-old man, husband and father of two. What made the event even crazier or, or more freakish, if you will, is that he was being a good Samaritan to an 84-year-old woman who lost control of her car. 
in those small moments that I had with him, he would die uh, in my arms. And I received just a couple weeks ago from the Carnegie Foundation a, per, a desire for me to write a letter of recommendation because he was up a finalist for uh, the award for acts of heroism that I said come with more than a million dollar prize that would be given to a surviving family. And it was pretty amazing that uh, what they were looking for from me was the eyewitness account of what would take his life, that act of heroism. But we recognize that, that not all letters of recommendation are that um, somber, that, that significant. But we also recognize that when we write letters of recommendation, we are affirming certain things upon that individual. There's only been one time where I've been tempted to lie about a letter of recommendation. I told the individual I didn't think I was qualified to write it, that I had some concerns, in fact, uh, about the things that, I would, uh, that they wanted me to write. And so I said, here's the thing. I'll go ahead and write what I believe is my best recommendation for you. I'll send it to you before I send it to the people, and you can tell me. And I quickly uh, got back to them, and uh, their response back was, uh, you know what, I'll find someone else to write a letter of recommendation. Because we want to be honest. We want to be able to say the things that are actually true about the individual. What we have in our text this morning is Paul's letter of recommendation about Jesus. Now, before you think, well, that's not all that important. If Jesus is God, who really cares what a fallible apostle like the apostle Paul has to say about him? But let's remember, these words are not the words simply of of a fallible apostle. But they are also the words of our Heavenly Father. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, God the Father establishes why Jesus Christ deserves all the praise and all the glory and why he is to be worshipped as the second person of the Trinity, God of God, light of light. And he gives three reasons this morning in our text. I want to warn you, my first point is by far the longest. My second point is shorter than that. And my third point will be light speed. So you don't have to worry, but we'll be done by the time the food's ready for generations. So let's get started. All right, so the first thing we need to recognize this morning is this letter of recommendation comes because of, first of all, Christ's personal characteristics. His personal characteristics. Within our text this morning, we have written by the Apostle Paul some of the most concise and comprehensive statements about the deity of Jesus Christ and his total equality with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to recognize this morning, as we put the spotlight on Jesus, we need to recognize what is a cardinal truth for us as as evangelical, and I might say even orthodox believers. And that is, as we put the spotlight on Jesus, we must always remember that Jesus Christ is not only God in and of himself, but he's a part of the triune Godhead, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God. It's the great mystery uh, of, of the Christian faith. And while we shine this light on Jesus, we must recognize that when we talk about the unity, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, that we must recognize that Jesus is not the Father, Jesus is not the Spirit, nor is the Father the Spirit or the Son, and likewise the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They are three distinct people or persons in one Godhead. And so I want to remind you of that because I don't want us to fall prey to other uh, ideas or false doctrines. We hold those things in unity and yet in trinity. And so before we get too far in this, we need to understand and, and ask the question, what Paul is going to write about Jesus, is it he just became so enamored with this Jesus that he wrote things that nobody else would write about? Well, when we talk on the subject of Jesus being God, his deity, we must understand that it is written over and over again in the scriptures. The apostle John, who walked and, and talked with Jesus, would write in his prologue uh, of the gospel of John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. And that Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld the glory of Jesus, the glory of the one and only. So John talks about it. The writer of Hebrews writes about this when he says that he is the radiance, the exact representation of the Father speaking of Jesus in the opening section of the book of Hebrews. When Peter confesses, when he is asked, who do people say that I am by Jesus? 
Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And we know that Jesus, even to the chagrin of all of the Pharisees, would affirm over and over again that he was not simply a prophet, that he was not simply a priest, but he was, in fact, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the great I am. And it's in this text that we are given the core of what theologians call our Christology, what we believe about Christ. And before you think that this is open to debate because the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness or Oneness Pentecostals say so, we want you to know that the record shows that we have the weight of Scripture and church history on our side, that we stand, and it may be, seem surprising to you, that we stand with Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians and all of Orthodox Christianity that we believe the same thing. This truth about Jesus is agreed by all of those, even though we differ on many other things. As Christians, we worship God as one in unity, but three in Trinity. Equal and one, yet three distinct in three persons. So, just as in our day, back in the days of Colossians, the deity of Christ was under attack. And Paul addresses it right from the get-go. After praying for the Colossian believers, he begins to reiterate the truth that Jesus Christ has been, is, and always will be the second person of the triune God. And that is clearly seen by some of the things that he says. Notice, first of all, that he is the image of the invisible God. That's right out of the text. Notice verse 15 says he, in fact, is this image bearer of God himself. To put it in a nutshell, in Christ, the invisible God has become visible. The word image there, if you want to follow along, that word image comes from the Greek word icon. And and this word icon uh, was a word that was used all the time. In Paul's days, a person who had just finished writing a letter would affix an icon to the end of his letter. It served as, if you will, a a caller ID that you are, in, in fact, the person that you say you are. And so this icon would be a couple things. Number one, it could be a description that describes something about yourself that the people that read your letter would know it's you. So I might write, hey, uh, this comes from your big bald friend who loves cooking pork chops, Tim Bedall. Okay? That would be my icon, that you would know, hey, that's, that's Bedall talking to us. That he's the one that's, that's written this letter. If I was artistic enough, and some did, they would actually draw a picture. So I would, of course, draw this muscle-bound, very good-looking, you know, self-picture, portrait of myself, that you'd be able to say, hey, that, that's Tim, um, and, and he's writing to us. Others would use an icon of a, a signet ring where they would pour some wax on the, on the uh, scroll and they would affix to that uh, wax uh, their ring, something that an insignia that would say, this is in fact Tim, and, and I seal it with the ring that only I have, the seal only that I have, and it proved to be an icon by which we would know the person is who they say they are. These icons were seen in coins. You would speak of an icon as you look in the mirror this morning. You saw an icon of yourself. You looked up and some of you didn't like what you saw and knew that you had to get pictures taken today. And so you spent some time working on your icon, getting it all prettied up so you could come to church. This is the idea of what Paul is talking about. Jesus is the icon of God. Now, we need to understand that it's not simply that it's just that Jesus looks like God. Remember, God is invisible. God does not have a face that man can, can look at. But it conveys the meaning that Christ is whatever God is. That if God is spiritual, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy and just and righteous, if he's in all ways doing all the right things, then so is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews understood this when he said in Hebrews 1.3 that he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We need to be very careful this morning, Christians, not to think that Jesus is simply a chip off the old block of the Father, that he looks a little bit like or resembles God in some faint way. Each of my children uh, carry a resemblance, but they are not an icon of their father. They look like me. They may sound like me. They may act like me, God forbid. 
but they do not carry an image of me. They are not my exact representation. They are not of me. They are not of their mother. They are their own person. And yet we know that Jesus would say categorically to, uh, to Philip in John 14, verse 8, that whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. So this word icon means a complete representation, a detailed reproduction. It means a portrait. It may have even meant a photograph if Paul would have had photographs in his day. William Barclay put it this way, without Christ, you and I cannot get beyond the shadows of God. To put it in a more modern day vernacular, without trying to be trite or casual, and to help some of our younger people in a way that they may understand, listen young people, in Christ, the invisible God took a selfie. So what are the implications of this? If Jesus is God made in flesh, and there's some implications that we need to add. Write that down. The implications of the incarnation. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When people in first century Palatine looked onto the uh, eyes and into the fa- face and eyes of Jesus, they were looking into the, the, the eyes and face of God. I think of the song, Mary, Did You Know? And, and asking the question, this baby that you hold in your hands is the creator of the universe. There's implications for it, and that is that this Jesus who walked for 33 years on this earth is God. The jury said, the judge has made his his rendering, Jesus is God. He's not a God, as the Jehovah's Witness say. He's not a half-breed. He's not a man, as the Mormons say, who became a God. He is not a phantom. He is not a spiritual emanation. Like many heretics today, the false teachers of Colossae didn't throw Jesus away. They didn't hate Jesus. But instead, they made him like some sort of superhero that we get from Marvel Comics or Greek mythology. Not as powerful as God but far more powerful than human beings. Jesus is not somewhere in between the two. He is God. And one of the ways that they do this is by twisting the words of Paul at the end of verse 15. Notice Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of over all creation. Humanly speaking, I wish those words were never penned in our Bibles because of the rank heresy that has been espoused by the modern-day Jehovah's Witness and Latter-day Saint Mormon beliefs concerning this verse. But I want you to remember that Scripture is not determined by the idiocy of men, but Scripture is determined because it comes from the mind and mouth of God. And so sadly, since the ascension of Christ, there have been some who have sought to make Jesus less than God. They took this verse to mean that Jesus at some point in the past had a beginning and was in fact the first thing that God created. He was number one on creation's list of things to do. Let me tell you something. This same crap is peddled when people knock on your door today. And when those knocks come, I am saddened when I hear people from this church, like many other evangelicals, who have no idea how to defend against it. What a sad commentary on us. That we can't even defend against worthless heresies who Jesus Christ is and what the Word of God says about it. And that's going to change today. You see, this battle with this terrible heresy has raged on for centuries and is in part what made St. Nicholas, that is Santa Claus, famous. Let me give you a history lesson about Santa Claus. In the fourth century, St. Nicholas was a pastor from the Lycus Valley in Turkey. Where is the city of Colossae? The Lycus Valley of Turkey. And in the fourth century, some 320 years after Christ, Nicholas would be called with many other prominent leaders under the rule of Constantine 
to come and be a part of the greatest uh, theological um, conference that had taken place since Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. And what was being brought up was the idea or thought that was espoused by a man named Arius. Arius, at the time, was one of the megachurch, if you will, pastors of the continent of Africa. Everybody knew Arius' name. He was one of the most famous of all preachers in his day. But there was a part of Arius' teaching that seemed to be out of place. And the Council of Nicaea wanted to, once and for all, uh, be the jury on whether what he was saying was true. And so he was given the floor. And Arius said, the best way I can communicate what I know and what our church believes about Jesus is what we sing in a song. And he began to sing a song about Jesus, the one who had been created. Jesus, the one made a little lower than God the Father. Jesus, the one who, like us, could one day become God. To which St. Nicholas, who was known for his uh, fiery temper, got up, quietly walked over to Arius and slapped him. That's why I like St. Nick. (laughs) Nick understood what many of us don't. That is, when Jesus is defiled by heresy, we need to respond. While we maybe don't need to respond with our fists, we need to be able to stand and be able to tell people who Jesus is, because if we don't understand truly who Jesus is, then we will fall to all types of heresy, and it will impact the way we live as it did in the Colossians days. So how do we do it? Let's examine. Because you're going to get a knock at the door. I don't know if it'll be tomorrow or it'll be some other time where two people, whether dressed up with white shirts and black ties or, or a set of people who say, uh, we want to talk to you about Jesus and our Jehovah God. <clears throat> and they'll begin to say things about God and they'll refute things that you believe about God and you won't be ready. I want you to be ready. I want you to prove yourself faithful because the, the standard of Christ demands that we know it. So let's look at it. They'll use the phrase, firstborn of all creation. And they'll say that Jesus Christ was created. That is not the fact. That is not the biblical truth. So let's examine it. Let the Bible speak for itself. First of all, we need to understand that in this verse, Paul refutes with two powerful descriptions of who Jesus is. He is the image and essence of God and the firstborn or the one preeminent over all creation. Jesus is declared by Paul as not being a created being, but that Christ is the essence of God made visible in human flesh. Christ is essentially and absolutely the perfect expression and representation of God the Father. So what do we do with this phrase, firstborn of all creation? The answer seems to be found in the context. And understand that cults like to take verses out of context. Drag them back to Colossians 1. When they say, well, he's the firstborn of all creation, that is, he is a created being, ask the question, what does it say in its context? Notice and follow along. In the context of the passage in verse 15, When it says firstborn of all creation, notice verse 16. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let's use some logic with regards to that verse. Seven times in our passage, we will see the word all. So let's do some some easy reasoning. If everything that has been created was created by Jesus, let's stop here for a moment. If over here we have everything that has ever been created, that all of that stuff was created by Jesus, then Jesus has to be over here in the uncreated, not with the created thing. Does that make sense? You cannot say Jesus is a created being and then read verse 16 and say, and all created things were made through Jesus. 
For that to be true, the Jehovah's Witnesses have to change the scriptures and have to say 99.9% of all created things were created through Jesus. Not all, but a lot was created by Jesus, and God created Jesus so that he could create that 99.9% of everything else. It does not hold water. It is not a logical conclusion. What Paul is articulating, there are two realms of, ex- of existence. Things that are created, all the things that Jesus created, all those things are created. Therefore, it means that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uncreated beings. If everything that was created was by Jesus, then he has to be uncreated and equal with the Father. Number two. So you say, well, that's, that might get them started, you know, and that may help a little bit. Let's give them a second reason why we think that their, their uh, interpretation is garbage. Number two, let's examine the word firstborn. And we've got to see how it's used in other passages of Scripture. We have to see how Scripture interprets Scripture. And so the firstborn, right away you say, well, sure, it surely sounds like Jesus was the firstborn. He was the first son of all of creation. Well, that's not how the Bible uses this term firstborn in the majority of its time. As we examine the scriptures, we see that the word firstborn is most often used as a title of dignity, prominence, or preeminence. Over and over again, we see the firstborn is more about a title of supremacy than a title of time. Noah is our firstborn son. We can say, yes, and correctly so, that he was the firstborn to Amanda and I in time. But that's not what the Bible seemingly uses it for. Write this passage down. Psalm 89, 27. Psalm 89, 27. It speaks of David, King David, being the firstborn. Well, let's stop here for a moment and remember our history. When Samuel goes to anoint the new king of Israel, he goes to the house of Jesse. And he starts with the oldest, that is, quote-unquote, the firstborn. And is David that first one? No. Is David the second one? No. The third, the fourth, no. He works down all the way through the sons of Jesse to the youngest of them out in the shepherd, or in the uh, flocks, tending to the flocks, out in the countryside, tending to the flocks. And one of the youngest of Jesse's becomes the firstborn. That is, of all of Jesse's boys, David becomes preeminent. He becomes king. Now, a Jehovah's Witness may say, well, that's not what that passage means. What it means is David is the firstborn, the first king of Israel. Is that true? No. Who came before David? Saul. So you can't maneuver, you can't, uh, you know, fiddle with it and say, well, this firstborn always means first in time. It doesn't with David. It speaks of prominence. Let's look at another one because we don't just want to combat one bad verse uh, interpretation with another verse. Let's keep going. In Psalm 89, 27, it seems that the psalmist answers the question that David, in fact, is the highest of the kings of the world. He's the preeminent one. I'll go on to Jeremiah 31, 9. Write this passage down, and you can look to these uh, later on this afternoon, but for the sake of time, let's move through them. In Jeremiah 31, 9, Ephraim, who is one of the sons of Joseph, is called the firstborn. But then write down Genesis 41, 51. In Genesis 41, 51, even though Ephraim is called the firstborn, we are told that Manasseh, was the firstborn and not Ephraim in Genesis 41, 51. So again, it has nothing to do with time, but what we learn is under Joseph, Ephraim would receive a double portion of the inheritance from his father in Egypt, Joseph. It is about blessing. It is about preeminence and predominance. Over and over again, we see that the firstborn was not about coming from the woman first, but speaks of one who seemingly is greater than the others. Esau came first, but Jacob the younger was the firstborn because the older would serve the younger. It speaks of an inheritance from the father. It speaks of a a special blessing, a special significance. 
Now, if that's not enough for your Jehovah's Witness encounters, let me give you one more. Let's look at the issue of language this morning. In the Greek, that word in verse 15, remember I said this is my longest point, so stick with it. In the Greek, the word firstborn is prototokos. Prototokos. It means firstborn, okay? If Paul wanted to clearly indicate that Jesus was first created, he was the first created one, there was a word that was used all the time, and it was the Greek word protokitso, which means first created. So if, if, if Paul wanted us to understand that Jesus was a created being, the first created being in creation by God the Father, he would have used a totally different word to explain it, and it would have made the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon's arguments a slam dunk, but he does not. So J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, sums it up well. Jesus existed before all creation began, and it was, was through him that everything was made. So when heretics come knocking at your door, don't stand there dumbfounded by their smooth talk and fancy words. Know your Bible. Defend the deity of Christ without fear and compromise. Remember, Jesus is the preeminent one, and he deserves first place in all things, no matter what, in, I need to be nice, another individual says. And by the way, don't slap them. Okay? So now we then move because the Apostle Paul says, okay, once we understand that he's the image of the invisible God and the implications of what that means, that Jesus Christ is in fact equal with the Father, now Paul moves and he gives reasons why he believes that. In verses 16 and 17, notice in the text, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is Paul saying here? Number one, that Jesus created all things visible and invisible. So we see his powerful capabilities. Jesus is God because, man, he has got power at his disposal. He has created everything seen and unseen. Now in this phrase, Paul uses an a argument that we would say in the Latin is an argument of ad nauseum ad infinitum, meaning he uses kind of inf in infinite words to the point of nausea, okay? I am going to prove to you over and over again that Jesus is God. And so he says, hey, I don't care what you call it, whether they are things created in heaven and on earth, all of that, Visible and invisible, he created all of that. Whether they're thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, he's saying, man, anything you can come up with that is seen or unseen in this universe must be created by Jesus Christ. In one fell swoop, he says, Jesus Christ created every bit of it. From the largest of the celestial stars and the galaxies to the smallest of the molecules and atoms, all of it, whether you can see it or not, is something that Jesus created. Now, Gnosticism taught that everything that was material or physical was sinful, that spirit alone was good. And Paul contradicts that or, or combats against that by saying that all created things, the material world, our physical bodies, is good because Jesus Christ made it and rules over it. But notice he gets more specific. He says that Jesus rules over the thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. This speaks of both earthly and heavenly realms. Jesus created here on earth the kings and rulers in this world. So we do not need to fear as, as if there are despots or presidents or prime ministers or kings or monarchies or dictators of this world who carry some sort of authority that we have to cower in fear. We have a relationship with the one who created those thrones. We have a relationship with the one who placed those people on their thrones and has authority and the power to take them from those thrones and those dominions. So we don't have to worry of what man can do to us. Next, this power also is seen in the spiritual or heavenly realm, the invisible realm. And it is that Jesus created and is in charge of all of the angels, 
From the highest archangel like Michael and Gabriel down to every single cherubim and seraphim, including the demons themselves, including Lucifer, the devil himself. God created and Christ is in charge of. Paul seems to use this opportunity to remind the Colossian believers that Jesus is not some spiritual being that is a little less than God, but a little more than the angels, as Colossians 2.18 seems to, to say. Jesus isn't in the same league as the angels. I remember phrase that. The angels are not in the same league as with Jesus. He created them, and they will always listen, always worship him as their God. So what does Jesus do with this universe that he's created? He claims it as his possession. Not only did Jesus create these things in the beginning, but according to verse 16, all things were created by him, that speaks of the past, and for him, that speaks of the present, and that slams the door in the face of anyone who thinks that after Christ created all these things, that he left the world, the universe, on its own. One pastor put it this way, stop thinking that Jesus in creation took the universe like a top and spun it and then left it spinning on its own and went on a break. He created it so that he might relate to his creation, that he might have fellowship with it. Shirley Guthrie put it this way, Jesus is not a king who preserves his majesty and his honor by shutting himself up in the splendor of his palace. No, Jesus' majesty is one of love so great that Jesus left the palace to live among his subjects as one of them, sharing their condition even at the risk of vulnerability to the attack of his own enemies. That is the incarnation. Jesus left heaven and became one of us. And I want you to recognize he did so at the vulnerability of the attack of the devil. But Jesus did it so that he could take ownership of all of our lives. He did it so he could be our great high priest who could sympathize with us in every way. He did it because he's uniquely concerned with all aspects of world affairs and even the mundane events of January 5th, Monday morning of your mundane lives. Kuiper put it this way, there's not a square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, it belongs to me. It's all for him. Notice he controls it as sovereign king and lord. Verse 17, he created it and he claims it and now he's before it. When it says that he is before all things, literally means he's at the helm. He's at the steering wheel. He's setting the direction, the vision of where this universe and all of us are going to go. Unlike all created things, Jesus is totally autonomous and no one tells him what to do. He requires nothing from no one. The idea of control here is not simply that he is in charge, but that he is what keeps the universe from falling into chaos. Paul says, listen, that we can rest assured that nothing will happen in this universe without the express written consent of Jesus Christ himself. No black hole, no nebulae, no solar system will ever, listen, move a nano-inch without Jesus seeing to it. Now you may say that's all fine and and good, but how does that impact me? You and I never have to worry that the universe that God created will collapse upon us. Annie was right. The sun will come up tomorrow. Why? Because Jesus is king. And if Jesus sees fit that the sun comes up, it will. We don't have to wonder about it. It does, and it does in perfect timing as it has a hundred and thousand times before. But there's also a micro understanding to this truth that is so important for us tomorrow morning to remember. If celestial bodies, if galaxies are at Christ's bidding, then so are our puny lives. God has your life in his hands, and not a single thing will ever happen to you without Jesus allowing it to be so. And that's what you and I need to remember when we're in the doctor's office. That's what we need to remember when the bank account says zero. That's what we need to remember in a world of terrorism, in a world of personal tragedy. We have a God who is completely and utterly and always in control. 
And so we do not need to fear. We do not to be give way because we have a God in Jesus Christ who is one we can trust because he is in control of all things. We need to remember that. That's why we do not grieve as the world grieves. We do not fear as the world fears. We do not lose our cool because Christ is in control. Well, it finally leads us to a plan and commission, and we'll move quickly through this because we'll address this in the days and and weeks to come. Paul finishes by bringing some of the results of what it means that Jesus is God. Because Jesus is God, he has power. Because Jesus is God, he holds positions. Because Jesus is God, he has plans that he is going to see brought to fulfillment. Because Jesus is God, there is no equal to him. He can do certain things. He can require certain positions. He can expect a certain amount of respect. So that's how Paul finishes. Notice, Paul says that because Jesus is God, in verses 19 and 20, he's the one who's able to make the payment on the cross. Notice in verse 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because Jesus is God, because the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus and the Father was pleased for that to take place, Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. And Jesus Christ alone is the one who can pay our penalty on the cross. He's the only one who can make peace between man and God. He's the only one who can reconcile sinners to a holy God. He's the only one who could have died on that cross on Golgotha's hill. He's the only one. And he did it. And he did it because he loves us. The God of this universe that holds everything together loves you and desires a relationship with you. And that's why he put on flesh and died a sinner's death on that cross. He was the only one who could. Number two, because he died a sinner's death on the cross, because he took our place, you need to understand that he now presides at a place, a certain place in the church. Notice verse 18, that he is the head of the body, that is the church. So if Jesus claims the church as his body, because he was the firstborn from the dead, the scripture says, which guarantees our own resurrection, because he was the one who bought with a price all that are a part of the church, then he is the one in control of the church. Oh, how I need to remind myself of this. This is not my church. This is not my pulpit. This church was bought with a price I could not pay. This church was given gifts by a savior to function as a gift from Christ himself that I could not give. Therefore, if all of that is true, then shouldn't the church, shouldn't Village Bible Church endeavor to allow Jesus to lead it as its head? The church isn't about a man. It isn't about the ministries that we do. It isn't about the money that we raise. Listen to me, Village Bible Church will cease to be the church unless it continues to be all about Jesus. A church is not a church when it doesn't do what the head tells it to do. So therefore, in light of all that I've said, it involves then that Christ is preeminent and he is to be crowned as king. It's his preeminence and coronation as king. All of this passage can be summed up in one verse, that in Jesus he might be preeminent. That's the theme of this book. That's the theme of our series, and it should be the goal of every one of our lives. That every thought and decision should be dictated that Jesus Christ be preeminent. Every dollar we spend, that Jesus would be made preeminent. Every relationship that we have, that Christ would be preeminent. That every second of our lives would center on the glory and worship of Jesus Christ because he is our preeminent one, our King of kings, and he deserves that and so much more. So, we have some personal and practical considerations to make. You've heard the message on the supremacy of Christ in all things. I have some questions for you this morning. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Don't assume that just because you go to a church that you believe it. Do you really believe it and affirm it as one of the greatest doctrines that the Scriptures declare. Second, if you believe it, 
Do you live in light of it? Do you live in such a way that people will see Christ's preeminence in you? Are you displaying it to others? What things need to change in your lives this morning? What areas of our lives have we tried to keep as our own that make us preeminent and not Christ? Listen, no Christian can simply announce that Jesus is preeminent and then choose to live for oneself, pursuing one's own prerogatives and pursuits. If that's what you're doing in your Christian life, you are an oxymoron, a paradox in terms. So let me close with a quote from Richard Sibbs. He says, the whole of a Christian should be nothing more, but pr- but nothing more than the praises and thanks to God. We should never eat nor sleep or do anything, but to eat and sleep to God's glory, to work for God's glory, to talk to the glory of God, and to do all things to the glory and praise of his name. That's our job this week. That's our goal, to make Christ preeminent in our lives, in everything that we do. Because when we do, when Christ becomes preeminent in our world, our world will never be the same. So that's our job. That's our work. Let's pray to that end. And God, we ask that you would be preeminent. God, we ask that you, by your Spirit's power, would be able to empower us to live for you, to speak for you, to act like you, to be changed by you in such a way that everything we do would point to your preeminence. That, Lord, when our world is collapsing around us, that we would not fear. We would not be filled with dismay because we know of the one who sits on the throne. Lord, that we would speak with confidence about this. We would speak with confidence about it when people ask us the reason for the hope we have. We would speak with confidence when people come and knock at our doors and proclaim a different gospel, uh, a gospel of, in fact, garbage and not glory. That we would be able to share this preeminence with a lost world that needs to know your truth. Lord, we have invested a lot of time speaking and praising your Son, one person of the Godhead. But we recognize this is right and good in the church to do because the day that Christ came to be baptized, we are reminded that what you, the Father, said was, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased and that the Spirit in unity descended upon your Son like a dove. So, Father, we follow you. We follow you in praising and lifting high the name of Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that that will never be absent from this pulpit or our lives. Thank you for the book of Colossians and what it means to us and how it impacts our lives. And let us live in light of this truth as we leave this place in fellowship with others to the glory of Jesus Christ now and forevermore.